Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is August the 21st, 2020. This is episode 2712 of the Survival Podcast, and I just don't think that's right. Hold on a second. Well, that is what cut and paste will get you. It is 2716 of the Survival Podcast, the expert counsel show for 81420. We've got a great lineup today on a Friday. Here's what we got to you for you today. Dr. Ken Berry will be talking to us about how to talk to family members about the keto life and uh, how to spread the keto message to people that you think really need it. And we're going to talk a little bit in that one about something called powdered butt syndrome, which Ken admittedly, and I have stolen as well, uh, it's a great, great term uh, from Dave Ramsey of investing in in, in debt elimination world, Um, because the guy is trying to talk to his dad, and that is complicated. Ken's going to give you a little bit of a ninja skill and spreading the keto life to your parents if you have to deal with powdered butt syndrome. And if you're talking to your parents, you're going to deal with powdered butt syndrome. What's that mean? Ken will tell you. Mike and Sue Laprise, uh, this is an old one. This goes back a couple months. It was a question on choosing a school curriculum for a homeschool co-op. I'm going to have a little adder to that one. Uh, but it did come in a couple months ago, and somehow I missed it in the exchanges or whatever. Uh, but they resent it to me like, hey, dude, you didn't play this, so I will play it for you today. Backyard micro orchards and maintaining a functional yard when the yard's pretty small and you want kids to be able to play and you want it to not be a mud hole and you want to have trees and fruits and stuff like that, what do you do? Jeff Lawton will talk to us about that. I'm going to have a little after ad on that one too. Michael Jordan's going to tell us all about the murder hornet, the biggest letdown of 2020. I mean, we had all this stuff coming into 2020, vampire rats and zombie freaking bats and God knows what else coming in it. Murder Hornet, that sounded like a whole new chapter of 2020 apocalypse and it kind of fizzled and Michael explained, you know, what the real deal is with these things and why they matter and why you shouldn't probably worry about them that much. Ben Falk will talk about using a solar powered pump system for pond based irrigation. That's got me thinking of a bunch of different things. You're going to like this one. Keith Snow, finally, is going to tell us about Thai ingredients for the deep pantry prepping and cooking. I hope. I haven't actually listened to it yet, so hopefully this time it will actually be the segment on Thai cooking and Thai ingredients because I love me some Thai food. Last time he said it, and it was on tomatoes. So hopefully this time it's the right one. We'll find out when we get to it. And I've got a little twofer that actually ties in. It may not seem like it at the end here. My segment today, I'm going to talk about a new study. Out uh, from, uh, I don't remember where, it's Bangladesh or something like that. Um, but it's an RCT, it's a randomized control test where you actually are separating into groups and you're doing comparative. This is a, a full on, you know, uh, trial uh, where they tested hydroxychloroquine and they used zinc and they did it on people that were probably about the right stage. It probably still could have been earlier, but about the right stage of the illness. Some were even asymptomatic at the time they began treatment. And they used the right antibiotic. And they used the right dosing. They used 400 loading and 200, 200, 200 for four days, full stop. They didn't kill anybody, and nobody died, and everybody recovered. And it looks like it proves HCQ works, but there's a funny thing. They were testing it not to see if it worked, They pretty much have decided over there already that it did work. They wanted to know, did this new therapy using ivermectin that I mentioned yesterday, ivermectin is used for worming dogs and other livestock. You can buy it at the feed store. 
with ivermectin therapy along with doxycycline, another very inexpensive uh, antibiotic, would it work? Turns out not only did it work, at least in this trial, which was admittedly a, a fairly small number of people, it seemed to work better. It seemed to work better. The HCQ actually had people clear the virus faster, those that cleared the virus quickly. Um, but the overall outcomes were better with ivermectin. Now you got two very inexpensive, very safe treatments that could be used, and we got another one, and we got another one. There's like four really good treatments for this now that are all inexpensive and highly available and really safe that are all being shit on by the media. The interesting thing is with the studies that have gone into ivermectin so far, it hasn't really been dumped on by the media yet, but I think as it starts to get used, I told you yesterday in uh, Australia, they are they are now releasing the ivermectin therapy protocol to general practitioner doctors. So now it's not just, hey, we can try this in a, uh, a hospital, but like your doctor that you go to because you, your stomach hurts, right, your, your regular everyday GP, they're using this in Australia now. It's going to be hard to shit on that, right? But we're going to talk about how that ties into my because I'm going to I almost told you everything I need to about this now, right? I just kind of hit the highlights again when we get to my segment. I'm going to give you kind of my final word on education. By the way, I did a great about hour fifteen minute discussion with Stefan Molyneux yesterday. Um, man, it was a fantastic two-way discussion with a lot contributed by both sides. It's on my YouTube channel. That's the only way you'll see Stefan, I think, on YouTube right now because they've they banned him from YouTube. Hopefully they won't ban me because I put my interview with him up on there. Um, but I've got it on Library TV as well. So does he. We're sharing it all over social media. And we talked about the fall of the K-12 government school system. And, I'm, and I know I've talked about it a lot lately. The latest uh, episode of Unloose the Goose was on this. I've been beating on it for weeks. I think it's really important. I also do not like to get too tunneled down on one topic on TSP. You know, I don't want this to become the homeschooler podcast, right? Uh, why you should homeschool podcast or whatever. But there's something that I need to finish up with that I'm going to do today, and then I'm not going to really talk about it unless there's something real important, like, you know, the state spying on people and invading their homes and stuff. Like, I might cover news stories like that. But I'm going to kind of let this one go for a little while and let you percolate on it if you haven't already made your decision. But what I'm going to tell you today is I think we're heading for a future. And what I'm talking about is 10 years from now and on with two classes of citizens. And you, if you have children in your life, whether you're direct children, like your, your father or mother, or they're like your nephews, and nieces, you don't want them in the other class. You don't want them in the other class, and it'll make complete sense when I explain it. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear our quote of the day today. I'm quoting Malcolm X on education again. I previously quoted Malcolm where he said only a fool would let his enemy educate his children. He also said something else about education that I thought really fit with my segment that I'll be doing as the anchor segment today. Education is the passport to the future, for tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. Wow. I don't know why it took me so long to find this quote by Malcolm X, because tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today could be the slogan of the survival podcast. That might be, you know, better than if times get tough or even if they don't, right? I mean, that tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. What a great quote just for preppers. But let's add, let's go prior to that comma there, right? That's kind of important. 
Education is the passport to the future. This is I'm going to not say much more about this right now. Because this is going to so tie in to what I'm talking about when I'm going to tell you that I think with what's about to happen to government schools, you're going to have two classes of citizens, those who are actually prepared for tomorrow and those that aren't. And actually both will be prepared for tomorrow, but far differently. And you do not want your children in that other group. It'll make sense when we get there. With that, let's go ahead and dig on into this stuff today. Let's start off with how the hell do you talk to your dad who powdered your bud about the keto life when you're doing really good it's changing your life it's making your life better you know you're going to live longer because of it you're looking at your dad who who your, your mom just passed away and he lost her and you don't want to lose him and you want him to get on board with this give up all the treats and sticky buns and crap like that and be around a little longer and how do you get your dad to listen to you ken let's talk about that Hey, Jack in the TSP tribe. This is Dr. Ken Berry. I'm back to answer a listener question. This question is from John, and John is doing quite well on keto, low carb. He's lost 25 pounds. He's feeling better. And his dad, who recently lost his wife, uh, just is afraid to do keto. He doesn't want to give up his chips and Mountain Dew and cake. And John's wondering, how can I get my dad on board because, you know, I kind of like my dad and I want to keep him around for a long time. This is a very common question I get, John, from lots of people. And the first thing that you've got to realize is that your your parent, your grandparent, your uncle, your aunt, they're a grown-up. They're a grown American. They ultimately can do whatever they want to do. And I realize you want to help them, but at the same time, while you can try to help them, ultimately you have to surrender to the fact that they're adults, they get to do what they want to do. So never should you be naggy or uh, too persistent or ever disrespectful to your elders. With that being said, there's five strategies that I've found that really help someone uh, convert an older relative to uh, a much more proper human diet way of eating which you're exactly right, John. It's going to help your dad in hundreds of ways, help him feel better, get out and get motivated. Also, it's going to help him grieve over this loss and eventually be able to healthily put that grieving to rest. Uh, what you're fighting against here, John, is called powdered butt syndrome. I didn't make that up. I stole that from Dave Ramsey. But it's 100% true. If somebody's ever powdered your naked little butt, watched you pick your nose and eat it, watched you scratch your butt and sniff it when you were a little kid, it's really hard for them to ever take what you say seriously. You could literally be a brain surgeon and a rocket scientist combined, and your mom, dad, grandparents, aunt, uncle, they just can't listen to you on an adult level. And so that's what you're fighting against. And the five strategies I found that help you with that is, first and foremost, you're already doing this, but to lead by quiet example. Don't be nagging and pushing and constantly yelling at them. Just first and foremost, fix your own health. Uh, you've lost 25 pounds so far. That's awesome. I don't know how much more you've got to lose, but as you continue to get more healthy, feel better, both physically and mentally, your dad's going to see that. Your dad pays attention to you just like all parents watch their children. And when you've made enough positive change, eventually your dad's going to say, okay, okay, fine. What, what am I supposed to do? Because you're doing great. Number two is what I call a ninja level tactic. And that's to talk to 
your dad's brother or sister or next door neighbor or the guy you has coffee with. Talk to them about low carb keto carnivore, proper human diet and get them on board because it's dumb. But what they say to your dad literally carries more weight than anything you could ever say. So that's a good ninja strategy is to get the next door neighbor on board. And then when they have coffee, then your dad will be on board and your dad will be trying to teach you about keto. I've seen that happen many times. Number three is to share a YouTube video. I've got over 300 uh, but you can pick anybody who you think your dot your dad would really hear. And most older folks, uh, not 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 that I'm saying this is a good thing, but they usually respect the opinion of a doctor more than they would respect the opinion of of you or someone else. And so maybe share one of my YouTube videos with your dad. That might be the very key that gets him on board. Next is if you just can't get your dad on board with low carb keto, then use a product like Keto Chow shakes or soups they've got like 50 different flavors and so you can make your dad a milkshake once a day you can even freeze the keto chow shakes and and makes a fairly tasty ice cream they've got a bunch of different flavors of soup like chicken noodle and tomato and you get to make these shakes and and soups with uh, a really healthy fat that not only is going to feed your dad's brain but it's also going to reduce inflammation in your dad's body and it's going to keep your dad full for many more hours than if he just eats a TV dinner. And so he's going to be less likely to snack on the chips and Mountain Dew and cake if he's not hungry. And so that's a great strategy. And then uh, then my last strategy is to just give it up and give it to God because your dad's a grown-up and you can't tell him. You're not the boss of him. So after you've done all these things, if there's just no hope or no luck of him ever converting, then just love your dad and continue to lead by quiet example. I hope this helps John and a lot of other listeners as well. This is Dr. Barry. I'll see you next time. I can't overstate how powerful your transformation is in getting other people to evaluate their own transformation. Number one, I have seen, I would say at this point, it's probably a thousand people in this audience at least who have reached out to me in one way or another, said I'm doing keto and it's changing my life for the better. That is not because I talked about it and said it worked. It's because people went online and watched my videos and watched me over about 60 days physically transform my body. It's because when people look at a picture of me now, especially if I shave, I did this interview with Stefan yesterday. I'm looking at the screenshot of it. I should have shaved. I look old as shit with my gray beard showing through. But people look at these pictures of me now, and they don't just say, Jesus, you lost 60 pounds. You look great. They're looking at it, and they're saying, God, look at your arms. I'm getting comments like that. I'm not bragging. I'm just saying, you know, dude, you must be lifting weight. I know you said, you know, I'm not really lifting weights. I'm doing a little bit of weight training, but not much. And they're also saying, do you look 10 years younger? And that gets people's attention. And I'll tell you, the, the person or people, I should say, that I'm proudest of having got onto this are Doc Bones and Nurse Amy. Doc didn't need to lose no weight, really. He's pretty good shape weight-wise, but he had quite a few things going on like high blood pressure and type 2 diabetes. You can be thin and have type 2 diabetes. Amy is at a point where she probably does need to lose some weight, especially as you know they're getting older just like we are. We've talked about it. They've seen the pictures, but when we just spent you know about three days with them in Florida, they asked about it. We didn't push it. I don't ever push. I highly advise you not to push things. Do not get Messiah complex. But they asked about the supplements we're using, etc. They went home and jumped on it. 
Doc's blood sugar is better than it's been in years. My 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 guess is within a couple more months, if he'll stick to it, he can probably not use any medication for type. He won't be type two diabetic anymore. Amy's losing weight. She's got energy. She's excited. It didn't come from saying, "Hey, y'all need to do this and listen to us." Because we, while we don't have an issue with powdered butt syndrome with Doc and Amy, they're the nurse practitioner and the doctor. My wife was an LVN, and I'm a nothing. How do you go telling a, a, a medical doctor that they should get on board with your nutritional program? You do it by demonstrating it. So I completely agree with the ninja tactic of getting their friends on board because the friends will listen to you, and they'll listen to their friends. But uh, also, nothing is more powerful than your results. Next up, let's talk about finding a homeschool curriculum for this fall uh, for a homeschool co-op. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSP community. Today's question comes from Josh in Pennsylvania. What is the best comprehensive learning program for elementary education to which parents can subscribe slash purchase to help form a new homeschool cooperative this fall? Details. Looking ahead to the fall, I expect that schools will be operating at limited capacity at best, and may close for longer stretches. We do not intend on homeschooling long-term, but I want to get in front of any potential closures by having a fallback system ready. By being the one to introduce the idea to select others, I feel we can be more discreet in who is involved, perhaps target others that can fill the gaps in what my wife and I are comfortable teaching. Don't mind investing in infrastructure software subscription costs that the cooperative would, would use because it's an added benefit to me and mine that we share the burden. So let's address the first thing is the com comprehensive online curriculum. So if your child is eight or younger, and you probably don't want to do a comprehensive online curriculum. It's a lot of computer time with any of those programs. And if your child is even 10 or 11 but not a strong reader, that online thing is very difficult. They really need more hands-on stuff. So the other question you have to ask is, what's your angle? Are you Christian? Are you a raging liberal? Are you libertarian? Because there's tons of curriculum out there, and they all have an angle. They all have a perspective that they're teaching from. So let's go with Ron Paul, for example. He's got a curriculum. It's comprehensive. The younger grades aren't really that good. But um, like the history is done by Tom Woods. It's really excellent. And you can buy all of it, or you can buy one subject. And the, my favorite part, because we have 10 kids, there's a family maximum that you pay for that comprehensive curriculum, which is really helpful. So the other thing about a comprehensive curriculum when you're talking about getting together with people is once you pick that comprehensive curriculum, you kind of end a bunch of arguments. So let's say I'm getting a group together and we've agreed to use Ron Paul curriculum entirely in the things that we do together, then you don't have to re-look for anything, you know, for, oh, I need better history or I have better science, because it's what we've done, because there wasn't those kinds of things for homeschoolers early on, is we've gone out and we've tried to find the very best that history has to offer for homeschoolers with large families, the very best science resource, the very best writing resource, so that we're getting the best, because when we have a comprehensive thing, Yeah, when you have a comprehensive program, there is some downfall to that, right? Because yes. they might be very good at history, not so good at math, or they might be very good at math, not so good at English and writing. So it's like uh, the components of a stereo system. 
you know, back when I was younger and I was an audiophile, one of the things you'd have with the stereo system is some people would buy just one thing that had a turntable on the top and a cassette thing in the front, and it was all one piece, and it was okay, but not great. Or you could buy a separate turntable, separate amplifier, separate tuner. You know, the pieces, you got to pick and choose what you wanted. And so there is something about the picking and choosing that you can pick the best of each category. So, um, but again, when you're getting together, comprehensive makes that reduces a lot of argument. So you mentioned that um, you're going to fall back to maybe go back to school. So it looks like you're from Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania is a really tough state to homeschool in. They're very intrusive, and if you pull your kid out briefly and want to put them back in, you're going to get their kids going to get tested, not you. And I'm very certain that the states are going to start coming up with penalties for withdrawing your kids and bringing them back in that will put a burden on your kids. So you may want to just stay with your local government school at home option this next year if you're thinking about going staying with the school system. It's, yeah, basically the state laws rule. Your options for now. Right. It's hard to jump in and out, especially at the high school level. Younger levels, it doesn't really matter. You can jump in and out all that you want. So one of the reasons we live in Texas, I mean, we literally drove up to Durango this summer to look at um, property in Colorado, and the state laws in Texas are just so much easier. There's no reporting law. This is really taking down the Texas um, homeschool law, too. You have to teach reading, spelling, grammar, math, and citizenship. And I'm thinking, what the citizenship? I don't think they're teaching citizenship. 91% of students go to government school and they're out rioting. So I'm thinking citizenship hasn't been on that list. 3% of children are homeschooled and 6% are in private school. So if you want to stay with the government school, just stay with the government school. It'll make it easier on your kid. There'll be fewer transitions in and out. And you'll still be at home. So you want to walk to freedom if you can. But if you can't and that doesn't work for you, make it easy for your kid. Um, think about your kid first. Hardly any kids miss school, the school part of school. They don't miss sitting in the desk, getting bullied in the hallways. I know on TV it's like they're always having lunch and in the hallways chatting with their friends. But really what your kids are going to miss is their friends, sports, band, or that one favorite thing that they love about school. Yeah, and if you're going to take that position of I'm going to be doing the government school at home, mm-hmm. which I think that's an option that a lot of people will end up taking, um, you still want to socialize your kids. So hanging out in the park, if you want to do social distancing, uh, setting up a group. So instead of it being a homeschool co-op, maybe it'd be a social co-op where you're getting together with people Uh, We do that here. Basically, honestly, we just have people over. We have friends over besides our co-op to hang out. And, yes, during this time of COVID, (laughs) we still have friends that come over. Because our children need friendships. They need to get together with those people. We've done a little Zoom and Google Hangout and stuff like that, but it's not the same as sitting down and chatting or playing a board game with friends or swimming or whatever. Yeah, that social part is really important. So It is. Um, this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com reminding you that what's best for your kids is walking in freedom. Back to you, Jack. You know, I wanted to, to add a little bit on the whole co-op idea and maybe not necessarily 
um, doing it the way so many people seem to, which, you know, like they said they use Ron Paul curriculum for the things that are in the co-op anyway, so that everybody's doing the same thing. I can understand why, and it's exactly why schools sort of equalize things and make everybody do the same curriculum at the same time, because it makes it easier for the teacher. If you come at this from the standpoint of children are not taught, they're encouraged to self-educate, it becomes wholly unnecessary. So, for instance, my grandson, again, is attending Excellus Academy. Everything he needs for support, other than a case, like when he, yesterday's assignment involved actually, instead of just answering questions on a test, he had to actually write a letter because it's an English grammar course that he's taking. So that had to be written, and then it had to be submitted. And so Grandma sat with him and explained, this is where your punctuation errors are, and, and helped him get it all right before he submitted it. That required some help and some oversight. 90% to 95% of what he does, all it requires is access to his computer and someone to make sure that he's doing it and someone to be sure that he's safe when he's doing it. He's nine. You don't leave a nine-year-old at home alone. That's all he needs over 90% of the time. If another kid was using the Ron Paul curriculum pretty much the same way at the same place, then we don't need to worry about the fact that they're using two different curriculums. And what you end up with is an attempt to replicate the public school system in a lot of these co-ops, and I think it's a mistake. Because now I have to find kids that are going to want to use the same curriculum, and i got to find kids in the same age brackets. And i got to try to keep them up with each other so that they stay up. Like we're all doing history, if, if the one kid's struggling with history... If I'm homeschooling him by myself at home, all I do is let him go slower on history, and I don't sweat it. You know, so, you know, since you're, you're kicking ass in math, let's let's work on math real heavy for a couple weeks. Let's get kind of ahead of your career, and let's go back and plot our way through the history, and let's just do history until it starts to make sense, or the other way around. Okay, if we come at a co-op that way, we can do that. And again, I do understand how it will be beneficial to whoever's kind of overseeing it. But if we start to then allow the kids to help each other, so if Billy's struggling a little bit with his math and, and Tommy's two years ahead of Billy, doesn't matter what curriculum Billy's using, Tommy can go over and say, hey, look, see, all you have to do is carry this over here. Let me show you how to do that. Now, now Tommy's benefiting from helping Billy as much as Billy is benefiting to have Tommy helping him. So I would much rather see people trying to put co-ops together more in the 1850s and back single schoolhouse model with different ages all together using their own curriculums if they want to. Because what will happen then is the most beneficial things of one curriculum will spread into the other. And I really like what we're doing because as we go into the future, if Braylon stays with this until he graduates... Braylon's not really homeschooled. I know you're like, what? He's not really homeschooled as far as, let's say, a transcript. He's attending Excellus Academy, which is a California private school. He's just doing distance learning to that private school. When he has a question, he can contact a teacher to help him. I don't have to do it. 
Now, it, it doesn't come for free like some of the other curriculums do, but 80 bucks a month is not that much. And I, I would say that like the easiest way, again, I know I start to sound like I'm doing a, a commercial for these people, but it might be the easiest curriculum to use for a co-op. Because it has so much support that comes with it, you really just need someone to help the kid with, occasionally with a little bit. And if they're really having a problem, you're paying for a service, so dial a teacher, basically. And they get the support and the help they need. And if they, need to, if they didn't understand a lesson, they just rerun that lesson. And then what I love about it is it spits out grades and a transcript. So when this is all over, he's going to have a transcript from a school like any other kid that went to any other school, but yet we get all the benefits of homeschooling, none of the invasiveness of the state. So I wouldn't hesitate to use that because here's my thing with co-ops. When you start saying we're all going to do X, you start excluding people from something that's already kind of complicated to put together to find enough people to make it work. And, and what we're really looking for is a safe, secure, loving place for kids to be during the day while they're doing their education if mom and dad have to go to work. That's the bigger thing we're looking for here. Or we're just looking for, let's load share. You know, I, I in some ways it would be easier to have 12 kids in my house one day a week than two kids in my house five days a week. So as long as mom or dad are home, or even if it was 12 kids two days a week, that would free my wife up to have a few days a week that she can go do things, even though she doesn't work. It just makes everything easier. So I'm not saying how to do it. I'm just saying that's the one way to come at it. Uh, next up, let's look at doing micro-orchard permaculture in the backyard and still saving some space in a not-so-big yard for kids to play. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And uh, I have a question from a gentleman called Hudson. And... Um, it's in relation to a, um, a small block of land. Uh, sounds like it's in the suburbs. And it's in central Texas. And it's a brand new construction. And um, the, the, the backyard um, is 50 feet wide by 100 feet long. And um, they'd like actually to have... Um, they'd like actually to... to have uh, a, a a backyard that's a, a fruit orchard and garden, but also has space for the kids to play in the backyard. And apparently the soil looks bad, and uh, they need to put something down um, that will help fertility as well as uh, somewhere for kids to play without getting muddy and extremely dirty. Um, they, Hudson has felt that you know he he didn't really want to pay for. Uh, um, you know, uh, for sod in the backyard. Now, <clears throat> the trouble with the trouble with heavy traffic areas, which kids are when they're playing, is there's not many ground covers that would work and handle the compaction and traffic. This is where grass does excel. So, you know, you can have in a cool climate. I'm not sure of your exact climate in central Texas, as in what altitude you are and how frosty it gets or how hot and dry it gets. And this is going to make a difference. If you're in the tropics, you can have pinto peanut. It's sort of uh, is a no mow lawn and it's a, a perennial prostrate ground cover legume. Wonderful plant, but it won't take heavy traffic, um, but it looks great. Um, 
in um, you can in a cool climate you can even have a a, um, a German chamomile chamomile grand cover lawn. You can have a penny royal lawn in the subtropics. They all look great. They look like a lawn, but they won't take the traffic of grass. So you really can't do both. Um, so you know if you've got um, uh, perennial grand covers underneath an orchard, they won't spend, they won't handle heavy traffic, and, and the trees don't like it either. So uh, you're stuck between <laughs> kid. <laughs> Kids creating a hard space would play, and an orchard wanting loose, you know, soil that's that's nice and friable with, you know, easy root penetration, water penetration, air penetration, and and, and lots of beneficial life. So um, you're stuck between the two. So this is what I would advise: define the area of importance. How much, you know, how much area do you need for the kids to play? Define that, and and you're going to have to put that either into a hardy lawn, and you can go for a buffalo grass or something like that, or even a paved area. And I'm 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 very dubious to say you could <laughs> take me with a pinch of salt here. You could use an astroturf, right? <laughs> it's like a piece of hardware in your house, or you could pave it, or you could concrete it, or you could put one of those soft playground covers on it. I don't know. Um, or you can go lawn, which is going to be a bit cooler, but you're going to have to mow it. Uh, but the kids might even wear the lawn. Depends how many kids and how active they are. Then the thing with kids is, the great thing is to keep them out of the food forest, keep them out of the orchard. And what I find that works really well, especially where I'm working with, is a lot of children in the third world, um, is to put up a very low wall. So, you know, it only has to be about two foot high, little concrete block wall, and you can cap it with sandstone or you could put terracotta capping tiles on it or you could dress it up so it looks really good. It just creates that physical barrier that defines one side is the play area or the area friendly to children and the other side is this ecology of uh, layers of plants and, 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 and vegetables and herbs and and different species, and there can be lots and lots of mulch and lots and lots of ground cover, and it can be a little bit wild. And, and there's this defined line between the two. And, and the kids, yeah, they might hop over the wall every now and again and walk around, but, you know, they're always going to be a bit cautious. There could be snakes in there. There could be critters in there. It, it, it is a bit mucky. It's not perfectly clean. The ground covers are not right on the ground. They're a bit higher. Um, you, you might have a track, a track inside the food forest. So the other option is to make the whole thing food forest and have long tracks going through it that they can ride their bikes around in circles or run around in circles through the, the food forest. But you must define where the track ends and, and the productive ecology starts. I've found it incredibly successful in the Middle East where we're oversupplied with kids in refugee camp villages and different places. I've seen it work in Brazil, in, the, in Manaus, in the Amazon, um, even in a botanic garden there, where the footpath edge is defined by a low wall. I like to make them low enough, not, not too low, but high enough, let's say, that you can sit on them. So it becomes a long seat. I've done this recently on a design in Bahrain, in the, in, in the Gulf, um, in the Arabic Gulf. Um, so it, it's, it, it's a great, great 
barrier that you can't just accidentally trip over. You can't accidentally ride your bike over it. There's a stop point. Now, inside of the open play area, it has to be hard enough that it stands the traffic. And vegetation-wise, some of the hardy lawns are probably the best. Otherwise, go to hardware and, and, and shade it in summer or something, like literally, you know, some hard surface. Um, but then have a clear line division to the ecology. Now, that's not to say you can't have an ecology that has a track running around it, but even the track needs to have a definite edge barrier to the ecology, which has a soft scape, ground covers, herbs, clumping plants, root, uh, root tuber plants, understory trees, overstory trees, climbers, etc. All of that thrives on lack of compaction and organic matter cycling. So, you know, define this people space, define the, the, the ecology. Of course, you can carefully walk through the ecology now and again, but it won't take heavy traffic. hope this is making sense. It's a very important point, and it really leads to a successful garden. So um, there you go. Okay, my only add is I'm assuming this place is somewhere in central Texas. It's not in the mountains, in the desert or anything. I'm not even considering the other alternative here. Um, Texas is a bitch. It really is. You've got, if you're in Blackland Prairie, you've got this black alkaline clay soil, probably limestone rock mixed in with it. Um, you're not going to get huge fruit production off of anything. Your two best species of fruit, in my experience, being here as long as I have now, is going to be peaches and pears. Pears are a lot harder to maintain at a dwarf level, but they are the most reliable trees that I've grown. Um, I would look heavily. You don't want trees, right? Let's like We always have to start saying, like, what we what we're, we what we say we want what do we really want so like the old saying is you don't want a drill bit you want a hole so as long as i can get the hole that i need the way that i want it in the thing that i want it i don't care if it's because superman showed up and did it with laser beams out of his eyes as long as he'll come back and make another one anytime i need it or with a carbide drill bit i just want a hole All right so what you're looking for is perennial fruit production that's reliable in your climate And I'm going to say, gummies are amazingly delicious, and they do well here. Gummies are like giant autumn olives. Just delicious, fruity, like nothing else like them in the world. They're easy to maintain as a bush. They're an nitrogen fixer. They're hardy as shit, and nothing bothers them. Nothing eats it. Nothing chomps it. I've never seen a disease get on them. The reason I lost mine, they didn't get enough sun. So as long as you're going to get enough sun on them, gummies. Blackberries. Blackberries, blackberries, blackberries. And another thing that you can look at that will give you more of a blackberry-like product over a longer period of time, opposite of when the black it'll produce before the blackberry and probably come back and produce again after. And you can print it to any size, and it's incredibly resilient. Dwarf mulberry, uh, Mora alba isai, uh, which you can eat once you get one. If you want to do a whole hedgerow of them, you can make as many as you want from green cuttings. And I would just add that to everything that Jeff said. On the grass, 
I wouldn't look to anything in Texas other than the buffalo grass that Jeff mentioned or Bermuda. The reason I like Bermuda for this use is my lawn gets beat up. I don't irrigate. My kids are, my grandkids are out there playing all the time. The dogs are out there all the time. The ducks are out there all the time. And we go through a drought every year. And Bermuda is the grass that I have that will completely look like it died, turn completely brown. If you dropped a match on it, you'd start a fire. You walk on it, it crunches. And finally, in late August, early September, when the first big rain comes after the drought, within two days, everything turns green and starts growing again. And it's compact. I mean, my ground is compact because it's four inches of clay on top of a rock slab. And if it'll live for me, it will live for you. Texas is a hard, especially central and west and southwest Texas, is a hard, hard place to grow food. I'm telling you, East Texas, wonderful. Houston area, wonderful. As soon as you move up and over, it is a tough environment. I love it here, but it's a tough environment. Uh, let's take another one. This one on the illustrious, the dangerous, the murder hornets. Michael Jordan, tell us about the murder hornet. Well, mellow, jello, hello, and happy Friday. That's right. This is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company located in Cheyenne, Wyoming, where we educate people in bees, apiary management, and the making of mead. Well, this year has been not only a pandemic, but record honey flow. We're using an 18-frame spinner spinning medium frames uh, from our M3 hive system. And each frame weighs about 4.5 pounds of honey. Uh, 18 frame spinner is an average of about 80 pounds of honey about every 10 minutes. So we're spinning about 800 pounds of honey every hour. And this is doable with a doable goal. So capping Ross rounds, bottling honey, and doing a whole kitchen remodel for my wife. I don't have much time. So thanks for signing up online programs that we're having on Zoom for the M3 system. Thank you for taking those on. And thanks for joining us here on Jack's uh, Survival Podcast. Man, may the goose wander. Okay? So let's get going. I got a question on Vespa Villatuna Nartothorax or the Murder Hornet. Murder Hornet. What is it? Where did it come from? And should I be worried? The world's largest wasp has been, has been spotted in Washington State. But don't panic. Efforts are on their way to stop it from spreading. As of May 29, 2020, Washington State's officials have confirmed a discovery of the third Asian giant hornet. Almost certain a queen found dead in a road near Custer, Washington. This is most likely a calling that was present in the state in the fall in 2019, and that it produced many queens. These large females lie dormant over the winter, and a small percentage are likely to create successful nests. This information was given to me by Stephen Spichler, an entomologist with the Washington State Department of Agriculture. The Asian giant hornet preferred to live in low mountains and forests, while almost completely avoiding the plains and high-altitude climates. 
This hornet creates a nest by digging into and opting into pre-existing tunnels dug by rodents or occupying spaces near rotted pine or the roots of those trees. The hornet feeds on priming a large insect colonies of, of other escustical, I think it's called eusociology, and I don't have man, my, my terms are not very good, eusociology insects, and it eats tree sap and the honey from other honeybee colonies. The Asian giant hornet is extremely large hornet that ranges from the size of 1.5 to about 2 inches long. They're equipped with relatively massive mandibles, teeth, and can tear easily honeybees in half. The hornets harvest bee brood and feed on their young and will defend a beehive as if it was their own nest, protecting its cattle until the hive is eaten away. The Asian hornet is native to Asia and occurs from Afghanistan across to India, Pakistan into eastern China, as well as the Indonesian archipelago. The Asian hornet subspecies Vesta velastusta nitrothorax was actually introduced in southwestern France on a shipment of pottery from China in 2005. As of now, researchers cannot confirm how the hornets arrived in America. It's most likely they got accidentally trapped in a shipping container from one of the countries where they're natively occupying. One of the complete hives of the insect was found and destroyed in late 19 or 2019 uh, in and near uh, Nianobo, Canada. Man, I'm bad with names. On May 4, 2020. Well, many are concerned, especially for local honeybee populations, the danger of the average person is low at this time. The hornets are probably not going to murder anybody, so don't panic. Remember from the classes that we put out about wasp traps to collect uh, the hunters losing to feed your apiary, right? That uh, when these looters come in, right, you want some wasp tra traps out, uh you know, bees won't go to it. You kind of hang them within the 10 feet area of your bees. As the hornets and stuff get closer, they'll be attracted to this easy food source and collecting them. You know, shine a light six inches above a bucket uh, of water, you know, and uh, so at night bugs fly into the light and then fly and bounce into the water and drown. A wax moth is easy to kill this way. Setting up bug zappers because bees don't fly at night and kill the pests that are around your hive. I mean, there's a lot to, to talk about when it comes to this. There mo there's a different kind moving into Europe and stuff. And I just think it's just a natural predator format that it's just like snakes moving into Guam. There was never snakes in Guam, and now they have a brown snake there, man, that kills you. It, man, it's, it's pretty deadly. So, I mean, the murder hornet's something to kind of check out, but I wouldn't really worry about it. Kind of like COVID. <laughs> All right. Uh, I got a link that I'm going to include this one. I said this with Jack. It's a link on the murder wasp that was talked and done during a, a bee meeting here at the Southeast Wyoming Beekeepers Association. Uh, we do some good meetings and such around here. Uh, hopefully you guys are having a great year on your honey flow. Ours has been tremendous. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Sorry I haven't been in all, all very much going on, but, uh, between this remodeling, 
doing honey flow. I've been keeping busy. So COVID has an effect me and I hope it has an effect you. Well, that's my time. So smash that like button and subscribe to YouTube channel and give us a share on beekeeping, mead making and urban gorilla living. Give us a heart on Instagram to support what we do with kids and American sign language beekeeping. And check us out on our events and up-to-date news and what's going on around the world. And in our own backyard on our Facebook accounts. We can't wait to see you, hear from you, and check you out. I'm your pocket beekeeper, Michael Jordan of a bee-friendly company. Helping you out where I can. Remember to get your honey from a keeper you respect. Get it from a small biz for a great product. And remember, try to help your fellow man. Because one day, you're going to need help, too. All right. All right, next up, I got one from Ben Falk on a, a new system he's put in using his ponds and solar pumping for drip irrigation. This is really cool, guys. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Got a little segment here on something we've been doing a lot of this summer. Um, I put up a YouTube video about it, um, but I don't think I've mentioned it on here. And that is a um, fertigation system into drip irrigation for one of our gardens um, that's in a really dry spot. And we've had a real drought this year. We basically had only two inches of rain in two months of high summer until a couple weeks ago when we got two inches in like 12 hours, uh, which was as much as we had from June 1st until that point, which was, was a full two months. So it's been real dry and was a final, finally a kick in the butt to get the whole garden on drip, which I had never done. I had never really needed to. Uh, but this was the year and I luckily got it in, in a few weeks into the really dry period. And I made it so that it could run on a solar pump, a two 100 watt panels driving a dank off solar slow pump, which is a really good system for solar direct pumping from a water source up to even hundreds of vertical feet. We're only going up about 20 vertical feet and we're sucking in about two feet of lift from the pond to the pump and then it pushes up, let's say, 18 feet. And um, then it go can go into the garden or to uh, a sprinkler. It's, it can generate about 70 PSI, this pump. Um, and I've been experimenting with this Mazzy style injector. It's spelled M-A-Z-Z-E-I, I think. And it's just an amazing piece of technology. It's a Venturi where you can basically just have the, the dongle that, that goes to this T-shaped piece of technology, which is a Venturi uh, unit. And you have like a, a, a quarter-inch hose that you can dip right into, um, you know, any type of fertility, a bucket of urine, watered down urine or fish emulsion or whatever, kelp, you know, hormone, liquid, you know, humic acid, whatever you want to fertilize the garden with. We use urine primarily because it's just very available. Might as well not waste it. And so you can bring out a bucket of urine every few days, whatever it is, sit it right on the ground, put this quarter inch, um, through two, three foot long piece of tubing into the bucket, no mess. Turn on the the pump. You can run it off your well, whatever it is. We're using the garden, uh, the uh, pond water because pond water is a lot better for plants than well water. It's warmer and it has nutrients in it. Hopefully your well doesn't. 
and um, it's better than using groundwater too if you have good surface water uh, from an aquifer standpoint. And um, then as you pump it, it will just take a metered amount of, of, of fertilizer water into it. So like one in a hundred or one in 200, I'm not sure exactly, but basically it'll suck in about three to four gallons in about half an hour. And we're probably putting out, um, you know, we're watering about two and a half gallons a minute. So I'm not running the math in my head this late at night, but you know, hundreds of gallons of water and it'll suck in three, five gallons of, of high fertility in that period of time. So it just, diffuses it out into the garden really well and everything cranks and uh it's been a great setup um nothing new but it's kind of new to us I and mean, i've been doing different parts of it over the years but i have yet to had gotten a mazzy fertilizer injector and fully set up the solar pump to pond water for solar direct uh drip irrigation in the garden so uh yeah it's been awesome highly recommended if you have a spot that needs irrigation drip irrigation is many folks know is the way to go uh, for a lot of context. And then from surface water is awesome. And if you can do solar direct, all the better versus well water. And it's a nice backup if and when my pump goes or the power's out, I still have that full backup, which is really good if you are in a droughty or dry situation and you don't have water, you're really not growing food. So it's nice to have a full backup, which this is. It's just a complete self-reliant system in of itself that backs up the well although it's primary for watering the garden really because it's better for the garden and uh, and then the mazzy or any type of inject uh, fertilizer uh, fertilizer injection system is awesome to just be able to fertilize all at once it's just pretty slick very low amount of work once it's set up to feed and really pump a garden Um, Hope everyone's doing well in all this uh, weird times. Take care. Just going to give you a reminder. uh, Tickets go up for sale uh, for TSP 2020 workshop September, Saturday the 12th at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. And if you do not show up at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time on the 12th, or I would say at the latest, if you're lucky at 10.30, you're probably not coming because the tickets will probably sell out because they usually do within about an hour-ish time frame. And the reason I bring that up at this point in the show is, one, just to give you a good reminder, but two, uh, Farmer Hogeye will be actually teaching you exactly how to set up solar-powered water pumping at our workshop, which will probably be worth half the price of admission alone. Uh, for four days with some of the coolest people you ever meet, eating some of the best food you'll ever have. Uh, with that, let's go ahead to our next one. Uh, and let's hope that it actually is what he says it is, and he didn't send me some other content again. Keith Snow on the Thai Pantry. Hey, Jeff Keith Snow, HarvestEating.com. Wanted to answer a question from Richard in Omaha, Nebraska. So Richard is interested in cooking Thai food at home. And uh, that is a great thing to be interested in, Richard. So um, my first advice is to find an Asian store. Now, most cities, I would say you've got to be in a city that's larger than 30,000, maybe 50,000 to have a good Asian store. I did a quick search in Omaha, Nebraska. I see two of them, actually three of them. So there's a good chance that you can get in there and find the ingredients that you need to start cooking Thai food at home. Now, recently, I went out um, living in northern Utah, 
and uh, we have a couple of Asian stores here, and um, I went and stocked up on a bunch of Thai ingredients, particularly the ones that store well. Um, I also visit Thai restaurants pretty frequently, and I'm often disappointed because the food, it's sort of like Mexican restaurants. Um, you go there, and it's just slop just because the people happen to be of the culture that they're cooking doesn't mean they know what they're doing and the restaurant business is is pretty pretty tricky as well so oftentimes these thai restaurants just don't have very good food bland and anybody from thailand would kind of look at it and you know chuckle and laugh so um, i actually happen to have experience cooking with a thai farm girl and she comes from i believe it's central thailand and out in the country, they cook a little different than in the city. Uh, of course, there's a lot of similarities in the ingredients, but the food that this lady, um, and, and I met her when we were on a homestead up in Montana, and I'm great friends with her and her family, and she is an amazing cook, and the type of cook that, um, she's not looking at recipes, she's just cooking instinctively, and she knows um, you could, I mean, I could cook with her for two minutes and see that she had great knife skills. And, um, the thing that I learned from her, and I was able to cook with her quite a bit and absorb a lot of, uh, her sort of, I don't know, Thai techniques. And being a trained chef for as many years as I've been, I was surprised by a lot of things. You know, my training and, and study comes from, um, classical French cooking. And that's a very specific way of doing things. And it's quite different when you're cooking some of these Asian cuisines. And particularly, her Thai cuisine was so different in that the amount of aromatics, you know, shallots, garlic, um, green onions, chilies, whatever she would use, would be way, way more than I would ever anticipate. And that's what makes her food so amazing. And her food was an explosion of flavor. Every bite was like, wow, this is incredible. Some of it was very spicy, but a lot of it wasn't, just was super flavorful. So we'll talk about some of the ingredients that are common in uh, Thai cooking. But um, for those of you that don't know Thai food, um, yeah, it's incredible. Penang curry, like a yellow curry, incredible. Also, uh, lemongrass, beef. Um, she does something called, um, we used to just call it chicken sauce. And it was basically sticky rice, which that's one technique that I still can't master. And she did it amazingly. But sticky rice is kind of dry and sticky. And you, you kind of turn it into a little spoon. And that's what they do. They eat with their hands quite a bit. You grab a little bit of this sticky rice and mold it. And you use it as like a scoop. And you scoop up this chicken sauce which was over the moon. I don't have time to go into it, um, but I just want to give you some basic ingredients that you're going to need um, to have. So fish sauce, this is critical for Thai cooking, and people are like, what is fish sauce? I don't know. It's, I mean, you can almost call it like Thai Worcestershire, but it's not the same thing, but it's basically fermented fish. They get fish, usually sardines and other fish, and they're basically... Uh, you know, left out in the sun in a big pile to ferment and then they're pressed and the, the liquid that comes out is basically fish sauce. Um, there's not much else in there. Um, and it is incredibly salty. Of course, they salt the fish too. That keeps it from spoiling. Um, but you can buy bad fish sauce and I'm going to give you the good brands that I use. So Red Boat, and you can get a lot of this on Amazon. Red Boat fish sauce, three crab 
brand and also squid brand and squid brand is kind of like a green and yellow bottle those are all excellent another thing you're going to need is coconut milk and definitely avoid thai kitchen brand the one that you see in a lot of supermarkets that's crap most of those little thai products in the in the supermarket aren't worth a damn um but there's one that comes in a brown and white uh can and i'm not going to be able to pronounce it but it's uh chow luke something like that of course i don't speak thai c h A-U-L-O-U-K, I believe is the spelling, but the can, again, is white and brown. Excellent stuff. And you always want to buy the full-fat version. There's another one, Arroyo, which is good. So you need good coconut milk. And then for rice, it's just about always jasmine rice. Very flavorful. It smells like popcorn when you're cooking it. Palm sugar and coconut sugar. These are two um, distinct things. Palm sugar comes in a little block, and you can get it in tubs or little rounds, and you need to sort of cut it with a knife. That's incredible stuff. And before I go any further, we'll talk about the main flavorings of Thai food. They're going to be salty, sweet, sour, um, umami, um, even a little bitter. Those are the flavors. And of course, spicy that you find in all Thai cuisine. In order for it to be balanced, you need to have some of those flavors represented. So back to the list, um, kaffir lime leaves. And again, these are the ingredients that you need to find at the Asian store. So find your local Asian store and go and support those folks and you'll get, there's just tens of thousands of products in there. It's amazing. I was wondering to myself, how the heck do they order all this stuff? Because it has to come from overseas. So kaffir lime leaves, and they're always going to have a fresh produce section, which is usually pretty good. Curry paste. Now, you can make curry paste. It's kind of like making curry powder where there's loads of ingredients, but the curry pastes in cans and in um, – I like the ones in cans the best. They make some of them in plastic tubs, and inside they're, they're in like a plastic bag. Eh, they're okay. But you're going to want yellow curry. That's that's the one you use to make Penang curry. Um, maybe some red curry. There's also um, green curry, which is definitely spicy. Um, lemongrass. Lemongrass. You cannot duplicate lemongrass by buying lemongrass puree because some stores will have lemongrass puree. Avoid that like the plague. Um, shallots, garlic, limes, cumin, chili flake. Thai chilies, tamarind is is incredible stuff, and you can buy a tamarind concentrate, and that is actually a pretty good product, and it's much easier than dealing with fresh tamarind, which is sticky as hell. Um, rice papers, ginger, galangal. Galangal is a root. It looks similar to ginger, but it has a much different flavor profile. They're cousins. Um, garlic chives. These are totally different than regular chives. They're in all pad thai. Um, Dark soy sauce, light soy sauce, oyster sauce, dried shrimp, shrimp paste. So you can buy shrimp paste in cans and in bottles. That stuff gives amazing flavor. And you wouldn't taste that it's shrimp. I just made some the other night. I made a fried um, Thai fried rice dish with a fried duck egg. How do you like that, Jack, on top? You can see that over at my Instagram page. It's Instagram.com slash Harvest Eating. That's a good place for you all to follow what I'm doing on a daily basis, if you give a crap. Um, and then rice noodles. And, and a lot of Thai dishes that are noodle-based, they use rice noodles. So like rice stick noodles, glass noodles, vermicelli nests. So all those kind of noodles. And most of those are gluten-free. But this gives you some basic Thai ingredients. But 
once you have a Thai pantry set up, you can cook a lot of different dishes. And again, a lot of these foods can be um, purchased and put into your pantry for longer term storage. And I always keep lots of coconut milk, fish sauce, palm sugar, all the, you know, the ones that can, you know, oyster sauce, soy sauce, those things last a long time. But the uh, fresh ingredients, again, you're best off getting to a a good Asian market to find those. Also, I just wanted to um, pimp my course for those of you that don't know about it. It's called um, Food Storage Feast. If you just put in foodstoragefeast.com, you can check out my um, course on buying and storing and cooking with long-term storable foods. And I would definitely encourage all of you listening in TSPville to be stocking up on food. There is a lot of challenges in the um supply chain. I know I order millions of dollars of food on an annual basis for a large resort here in Utah, and we have all kinds of challenges since the coronavirus and getting basic things. So make sure you're stocking up on those things that last a long time and and be prepared. But with that, I want to thank Jack for letting me continue to uh, contribute content. Again, follow me over at Instagram.com slash Harvest Eating. I hope you all have a great weekend. Take care. Okay, so we got bang on the content we're supposed to have this time from Keith. That was good. And let's go to my segments instead of segment today. Again, I kind of already in the intro gave you the first one. It's designed to be brief. But there's a new study out. You can read it yourself um, where they did it's a randomized controlled test where they equalized the groups and all. And uh, they tested both uh, hydroxychloroquine. Uh, and ivermectin protocols on COVID. And they actually found that the ivermectin protocol might be more effective. What's interesting to me is they didn't have anybody die. They didn't kill anybody. They didn't have anybody have to stop taking the medication because of side effects. And the reason they didn't have to do that is they used, like, dosages that made sense. Instead of giving people uh, literally toxic doses of hydroxychloroquine at the the point where they were almost going to be dead anyway. They took people that were mild to moderate and even some asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic people. They gave them the exact protocol that they were supposed to. They gave them zinc. They gave them 400 milligrams of a loading dose of hydroxychloroquine in day one, 200 milligrams for four days, full stop, no more. And they got really great results from hydroxychloroquine. But they got even better results with the ivermectin protocol. And, And this just tells me there's two effective treatments right there. They may not be the, They may not be like a silver bullet that if you do it, you're 100% of the time. No treatment generally works that way, folks. But you've also got the inhaled cortical steroid treatment, and now we potentially may have something with an oleander extract. It's poisonous! The guy on MSNBC says it's, it is poisonous. So is digitalis, which comes from the foxglove plant. It saves lives. That would be four inexpensive, easy-to-produce safe treatments that probably work, and the media doesn't want you to look at any of it. And I just wanted you to know that. Call it the COVID minute for today, because that's all i got to say on it, except how it ties into what I'm about to talk about. I've been on this about get your kids out of the government school system. I've always been an advocate of homeschooling, and I'm not changing my tune because we've taken the step ourselves. The truth is, I would have taken the step long ago. Um, my wife and I had talked about homeschooling uh, our grandson for a couple years now. 
and the only reason we didn't is because there was resistance from his parents to doing it. And in the end, he's not my son, he's theirs. COVID gave us the opportunity to see what it was like, for them to see what it was like, for him to see what it was like, and that's what it did for so many other people. And once we made a decision, if he was going to learn from home, there was no reason to involve the beast of the school system anymore. And once they understood the oversight that the school would have, And the reporting responsibilities that we weren't going to see. I was like, we're not doing that. You can do it, but we're not doing it. They didn't want it either. So I'm not like, okay, now that I'm doing it, you need to do it too. That's not where I'm coming from. I am legitimately concerned for the safety and the long-term health and mental stability and the knowledge and the functionality of children today who remain in the public school system. I really think we are heading for a place that in 10 years' time, as students that are, you know, eight years, six years from graduating high school right now, you're going to have two classes of people, and for as long as the state's system is held on to, It will remain that way, and you don't want to be in the class of people that come out of the government school system. It is not going to be very long at all before industry and secondary education, okay, post-secondary education, I'm sorry, so the university system and the technical schools and all start to actually favor homeschooled children. When you go to college, the biggest adjustment for most children is you're responsible for your own shit. I mean, that's what I've been told by students, and it's what I've been told by college professors. They get kids out of high school, had great grades in high school. They were constantly pushed to do something, and now they're a paying customer who's responsible for using the service that they're given. And they, a lot of times, students that did really well in high school struggle like crazy in college. And it's not just being set free and whatever. It's, hey, here's, here's your reading list. Bye. It's here's your project, bye. And they don't know how to handle it. Children that go through just about any type of homeschooling, the reason they do better in college, and they do better in college. Let me just be very clear about that. The graduation graduation rate of children who begin college from homeschool versus from state school is 12% higher for homeschoolers. So don't worry about how many get in. Of those that go to college... 12% more, and it's it, it, when I'm saying that, I'm not saying 12% of the total. I'm saying it's something like 57%. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's only like 57%. It's somewhere, it's either 57% or 54% of kids that go to college out of the state school system actually finish college. Almost half drop out. So if it's 54%, then it's 66% of homeschoolers complete college once they begin it. That when I say 12% more, I mean 12% on the full, not 12% of the number. And that's that is that is a massive you, I'm guaranteeing you if it was the other way around, if 12% less graduated, the state would be shrieking that homeschool is failing our children. So right now already we're there. Now I need you to understand what's happening here. For you to understand this two classes of citizens that's going to occur. The people who are most active and most concerned about their children are the majority of people who are withdrawing their children from the public 
system right now. I am not saying that people, not like anybody who isn't, is not an active parent who's engaged with their children who really care. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the majority of people who are taking their kids out of school are. They are the best students. Or let's say, because I know I'm going to offend somebody that's not pulling your kid out. Because your kid's great. They're a straight-A student. They're wonderful. You, you're involved. You're in PTA. You, I understand that. I'm not saying that's not the case. I'm saying almost all the students coming out, are, if you're that person, they're like you. All those great students are leaving first. It is a brain drain. You have to teach to the median in a public education system with classes with 24 to 35 students in them. You can't teach to the top and you can't teach to the bottom. You have to teach to the median. When you suck out the top, like the top 10 or 20% of students, which is what you're losing right now, the median falls. You understand that? There is no... There's no other outcome you can have. Those of you who are paying stupid property taxes because this was the most important issue to you when you bought a home, what the schools were like, and you had a school you could have moved to that neighborhood and paid less for the house and less for the taxes, and that school was okay, but it wasn't good enough for Johnny or Susie. You understand what I'm saying, right? You're the person that did that. You're going to be left with the bill, but that school is going to fall in performance to the level of the one that you didn't think was good enough because the median's going to fall, so the level of instruction is going to fall. On top of it, you're going to lose tons of teachers, tons of resources. are going to sandwich kids into, to, to, like, districts right now that have four elementary schools are going to have three or two. It's all a mess. And the schools, as bad as they are, are going to become worse they're going to become a place where teachers are literally slitting each other's throat from behind the back because they're trying to be one of the teachers that survives the purge. Administrators are going to become more, not less bloated because they're the ones that can most insulate themselves from these effects. There will be more problems between students in schools because there'll be less good and more of the bad element in that because the parents that don't give a shit the ones that teachers are like, I can't, you know, the kid's disruptive. I call the parent. The parent doesn't care. That kid's not coming out and going to public or going to homeschool. They're staying. The 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 percentage of the bad goes up when you move a percentage of the good. And then you're going to have okay, the homeschoolers have the already been kicking the public schoolers' butts academically. In every way definable, I'm telling you right now, when you meet a 16-year-old kid who's been homeschooled since they were eight, and you shake that kid's hand and you talk to that kid, you do not feel like you're talking to a 16-year-old boy or girl. You feel like you're talking to a 23, 24-year-old young man or woman. 99% of the time. There's you know, there's people that are developmentally whatever... I, if you do that and you say, well, this is representative of homeschool, it's like finding that same kid in public school and saying it's representative of public school. On the average, I can tell a kid that's been homeschooled for more than a few years from a public school kid to the positive in five seconds of meeting that kid because they handle themselves differently. Right now, that's a small minority of people that are out competing for jobs and things like that. 
when it's 20 to 30 to 40 percent of the population and and jobs are being reduced and opportunities are being reduced with automation and all the other things that are going on in this decade of flux you don't want your kid out competing when they're 23 years old coming out of that old archaic system with 20 to 30 to 40 percent of the people that they're competing for those opportunities with coming out of a system like we're building as a homeschool community This is back to what I said earlier about you don't want a drill bit, you want a hole. I want to be very clear here. You do not want school for your child. I know you think you do. I know you've been convinced of that. You have been convinced that school and education are the same thing. You have been programmed to think that way your entire life. You've been programmed to believe that the only person that can possibly teach a fourth grader fourth grade is someone with an advanced college degree with a special piece of paper from the state. I want you to think about this for a second. This makes no logical sense. If a fifth grader is not capable of teaching a fourth grader everything a fourth grader needs to know, the fourth grade school program is a failure. Let me say that again. If a fifth grader who got straight A's last year in fourth grade is not capable of teaching the fourth grade, the system we have for fourth graders is a failure. Because you should be able to teach what you know. And if you can't teach something, you don't know it. So if you have somebody that came out of the fourth grade with A's, that can't teach, and I understand there's an emotional maturity level required to be a teacher in that environment. I get that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying mechanistically, if you can't take that, that fifth grader, sit them down and sell, tell, tell Johnny how to, how, to, how to, I don't know, do a Punnett square, and they can't do it, and they did it last year, and they got an A on the test, and they don't have to look at it again until 8th grade science, when they're going to have to relearn it, then 4th grade was a failure. And this belief that we need someone who has a freaking master's degree in the state of Maryland to be a teacher. Because in Maryland, when you get your license to teach, you have five years to, to go from a bachelor's degree to a master's degree, or they take your license away. There is no need for someone teaching fifth grade to have a freaking master's degree. What they need to do is be really good at teaching fifth grade. Which by and large should require a sixth to seventh grade education. I'm not saying that that's what we should do. I'm just saying like if you think about it logically, if you get a person through the seventh grade and they can't teach the fifth grade, it's a failure. In the military, we had a very simple concept for how we learned. See it, do it, teach it, know it. See it, do it, teach it, know it. Same way they teach doctors in residency and in and internships. See one, do one, teach one. Come in, observe one being performed. Next, do one under the supervision of your senior resident. Three, teach a lower level person who hasn't done one yet, how to do it, again, under the guidance of your senior resident, and then you know it. That doesn't mean you completely then just go off and do them all on your own forever. It depends on the level and what's required and how proficient you are and things like that, and you stay under the, 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 the supervision of, a, of higher level doctors for a long period of time. That's part of the medical program, but it's exactly what they do. See one, do one, teach one. And this is how we should be teaching our children in homeschool environments. 
instead of reviewing the information with your child that they just went through in their lesson, ask them to teach you that information and do it immediately. Do it immediately. That's what we did in the military. You would observe a skill, practice a skill, and the second you completed the task, I mean the very second you completed the task and the instructor that instructed you in it said that was right, put it back to the beginning, do it again, and teach me how to do it as though I don't know. Teach me. And they, what they say now, I'm, I'm too old for this. They didn't say it back when I was in, but what they say now is break it down Barney style. right? Make it as simple as possible. Barney being the giant purple dinosaur. Break it down Barney style. Teach me like I don't, I've never seen this before. So I'm now judging you not on whether you do it right, but as an expert instructor, would I consider that instruction good enough for the next person I'm about to teach, for them to be able to do it? If not, no go. Go back to the line. We'll go through this process again. I'll show it to you. You do it. Then you're going to teach it to me. Then you know it. And one way or another, inevitably, this is what occurs for most homeschoolers. And the reason it works, Stefan asked me yesterday during our interview, he goes, don't you think that maybe the reason that homeschoolers have done better academically than, than you know public school students is simply that you have smarter parents teaching their children, and we need smarter teachers, and we're never going to get that in on it. And I said, no, I don't think so. I think the only reason that homeschoolers do academically long-term better, they may not, uh, they may not do better for the time period, let's say, between eight and nine years of age. You might have a homeschooler that if you compared their progress in mathematics to eight- to nine-year-age students in the public system, that individual student may not do as well at mathematics. It's okay. They have plenty of time as they intellectually develop to like come up to speed on mathematics. And what happens is a parent being involved says, Johnny is struggling with math. Well, what do we do now? Do we just tell Johnny to try harder? Because this is what happens. When you send your kid off to school... You expect that the instruction is adequate, and whenever there's a failure, you tend to blame your student. You tend to blame your child. You're just not applying yourself. You're not trying hard enough. And if you suggest to the teacher that maybe you need to try something differently, they get very angry and they get very upset, and they say, see, this is the problem with parents. You're not, you're not placing the blame where it belongs. You're, Johnny's the one that's not doing his homework. Johnny's the one that's not trying enough. Johnny's the one that's not paying attention to school. This works for everybody else, and that's a lie. No, it doesn't. You have plenty of other Johnnies, you lying, freaking, I don't want to say the word, but you're lying. When a teacher says that, they're full of shit. They have tons of students who can't achieve what they're trying to achieve. No, as a homeschool parent, you say, okay, this isn't working. Let's try something else, which might be, you know what, we're just not doing math for a week. Let's just take it, because what happens is the kid's getting very frustrated. Here's what we're going to do. A week ago, you understood what you were doing in math, right? Yes. Don't lie to me. You did understand it. Yes, I did. Okay. For the next week, you're going to focus on science and history and grammar. We're not even going to do math for the next week. We're going to take a break from it. After a week, we're going to get ahead in science and history, right, and, and grammar. We're going to get a few days ahead. That's going to give you two or three days to do nothing but math. We're going to go two lessons back in math from where you are today. 
And we're going to start there where you did good. And you're going to take your time and go through it again over a couple days. And then you're going to come up to this part that you're struggling on. And you're going to repeat it. And we're going to see if that works for you. And if it does, then you just keep going forward. You go back into it. If it doesn't, then you say, listen, I either can try to help you understand this, if you understand it. And if you don't, you're going to say, you know what I'm going to do? We're just going to go back to We're going to put it on the shelf again. And I'm going to find you a tutor, virtual tutor or in-home tutor that's going to help you get through this particular piece. And until we find somebody, we're just not going to do it. And then what happens? Eventually you find someone to help and then you get through it. Or you find a totally different method of learning. And that's why they excel. And so what does that teach that student to do when they struggle with something in life? Adapt improvise and overcome and that's why they're so much better as entrepreneurs that's why they're so much better as leaders and you can say whatever you want about introverted or whatever there are certain things that are personal characteristics of people some people are outgoing the way that I am some people are introverted right we have our you know you're an ESTP or an ITNJ personality type that's not going to change but what I'm saying is Whatever potential to be a leader that a student has, they're more likely to fulfill that potential, that innate potential that they have in this type of a learning environment. And I'm telling you, I'm pleading with you, whatever you need to do to keep your kid at home, if your kid has been at home since March, you have done it. There is a way. And use whatever works for you. Yes, I'm big on Excellus because that's what you're using. And you know me. Do you think I just said, oh, Excellus, that sounds good? No, we researched like a dozen options. And we came down on this as being the, the one that seemed to work the best and do the most for us in return for what we had to put in. You might find something different, but there's a reason I recommend anything I recommend. You guys know that. And so I would start there, at least look at it. And I want to just throw in one more thing for them. The, the Excellus program is $250 a month. If you do the Roger Billings Mentoring Program, it goes down to 80. 80 is very affordable. All you have to do is make sure your kid watches one one-hour video a week. That's the Roger Billings Mentoring Program. And by the way, who is Roger Billings? Roger Billings invented gigabit Ethernet. Roger Billings invented the first hydrogen-powered car. Roger Billings is the guy that founded Excellus Academy. I'm thinking... That that's the kind of scientist that I want developing learning technology. That's why we. That's one of the reasons we chose it. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you that you can always support this show. How? Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Now, like I said just now, when I recommend something, I have done my research. I have found the best thing in the category. I have paid money for it. I have used it, and I've said, you know what? If I need something again that does that, I'm going to buy this thing again, or I won't recommend it. Today is an easy one to say that about. I buy these all the time. I have these on auto ship. Chomps, uh, grass-fed black pepper venison sticks. These are keto-friendly, these are paleo-friendly, and they taste good. They're everything a Slim Jim promised to be and never was. I mean, they're just fan And black pepper and garlic and venison. It's like a marriage made in heaven, in my opinion. You'll like these things. Again, they're made by a company called Chomps, C-H-O-M-P-S. They make a lot of different flavors, and they're all good, but the ones that are the most 
bang on for keto, meaning they don't have extra sugars in them and things like that, is the venison black pepper. If you, The only thing I'm going to warn you is if you buy them, you're going to eat them and you're going to buy more. You're going to get addicted to them. But that's a good addiction to have. Check them out today. Chomps grass-fed black pepper venison sticks. And remember, you can always support the show and the work that we do. Bye. That was terrible. Anyway, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. I need a tspaz jingle, man. Somebody should make me a tspaz jingle. Get it stuck in your head and you won't forget it. That's Marketing 101. Anyway, with that on music, let's talk to you about the song of the day today. The, t- the song I have today for you is a really cool song. Um, I think a lot of people that know it really well don't know what it's about. Um, it's by ACDC, and it's called uh, Back in Black. So this album was released five months after lead singer Bon Scott uh, died. And it was released as a tribute to Scott. And in the lyrics, there's a line, Forget the hearse, because I never die, implied that he would live on forever through his music. And I just thought that was really cool. And with Brian Johnson on lead vocals for the Black and Black album, it proved ACDC could go on without Scott. I don't know if they would ever be the same, but they made a lot of great, still making good music. Right? And they had some really great hits during the 80s. This was on uh, the Back and Black album released in 1980. It was the first thing released after Bon Scott passed away. So that was their little trivia tidbit. In it. But why I picked it for today. A lot of times, you know... I'll, I'll go to deep dive on the philosophy or the message in a song. I just feel like we've had a lot of bad shit go on this year. We've had a lot of crap to deal with. I've had to, to do some of the darker shows that I've ever done in 12 years of doing this show this year. And it's a Friday, and I just thought it would be badass to have like a badass rocking song to go out on today. That's it. That's the reason I picked it. With that, has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.